I play basketball at the Y in Stoughton with a whole lot of other older guys who are reliving their youth. And uh, we have a playoff. So we have a a 10-week regular season, and then we have a play-in game for the bottom two teams uh, to get into the playoffs. And uh, bottom four teams, I should say. And uh, that game was two Tuesdays ago. And um, I'm on a team with another guy from Grace Church, and we're playing against another team whose best score is also for, from Grace Church. There's about 15 or 20 of us from Grace Church in this league, by the way. In fact, my Jewish friend who runs the league made the comment that night, hey, man, how many parishioners do you have? He says, they're everywhere. He said, we should start calling this the Grace Church Jewish League. And I was like, bro, I'm game. I thought it was hilarious. Um, but in any case, uh, we got our butts handed to us. And ironically, the lead scorer on the other team was this guy from Grace Church who scored in the high 40s. He was shooting out of his mind. Oh my gosh, he did so, so good. Uh, his name is Giovan. Uh, Giovan. Anyway, um, so he shot great. Uh, I, on the other hand, was horrible. Now, I'm not the best shooter on our team. That's another guy who attends Grace Church occasionally. Um, but he he was great, as he always is. I couldn't make anything. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm not the first best shooter. I'm not the second best shooter. But usually on a team, I'm, I'm, I'll be the third best guy. I, I average about 16 points a game. But in this last night of the season, last game of the season, uh, I had four points. It was horrible. I, I, oh gosh, I'm not saying that we lost because of me, uh, but I'm the reason why we lost. And I couldn't hit anything. Like my first four or five shots of the night were just bad. It, I had missed the previous two weeks because of traveling and this is my, you know, my night back. And it is also our play-in game so that we can get into the playoffs. And I didn't really, I had like 10 minutes to warm up and I, I couldn't hit anything. My first four or five shots were bricks and I had one air ball and that's that's just embarrassing man you don't want an air ball ever so then for the rest of the game anytime I would get the ball like your first option when you get the ball is score like every coach will tell you when you get the ball look to score if you can't score uh, then you look to pass and if there's nobody open then you dribble so like that's the progression you go score pass and dribble so you get the ball look to the basket and anytime I was in range my brain is saying and I'm open if you're open and you're in range Shoot, like automatic. Don't even think about it. If you're within your range and you're open, always, 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 always score. But because of these first four or five shots that I had missed, I'd get the ball and I'd look at the rim. And while I'm shooting, my thought is, I'm going to miss. What do you think I did? I missed. Every time. It was hor- like I, I made two baskets that night in that game for, for four points. There's one time I was all by myself and... uh it's a fast break. I get the ball and there's nobody around me. The rim's just right above my head. And I think to myself, what if I miss this layup? So I went to shoot. And what do you think I did? I missed the layup. Oh my gosh, it was so embarrassing. I think the next time I shot, the best shooter on our team, he yells, come on, Sean, give me one, right? Just one basket, make one basket. Like that's how bad it, it was. It was, a, it was a horrible night. And I had lost all confidence. See, the problem I don't think was the player or even the talent. It was the thinking in the player. That's, that's what had, had messed me up for the night. It seems that there are some people, like this guy in our church who's our best scorer, and a guy who happens to be in our church who was the other team's best scorer, it seems that some people just have 
confidence, man. They're just, they walk into the room with just, you know, they, they, they're a little bit stretched, a little, like their shoulders are back, chest is out, head is up, right? Like they command presence. Like the, and it's, like, I don't know where that confidence comes from. I remember recognizing it for the first time, though, in sixth grade. There's a guy in our school, in my class, named Mark Ventura. Mark Ventura, at 11 years old, had already started shaving. He had head, hair under his arms, like in the sixth grade. Like he was, he looked like a grown man in elementary school. It was incredibly intimidating. And oh man, Mark Ventura, he was Captain Cool. When I was in high school, there's another guy named Sean Wright. Sean Wright was a year younger than me. But Sean Wright was as big as the guys that were a year or older than me. So like the upperclassmen were inviting this underclassmen to all of this stuff. And so and Sean was just bigger than everybody else his size. But I don't know if it's just the early bloomers or, you know, the guys who physically mature faster than everybody else. Because you and I probably both know people that were early bloomers that became very insecure or... We know people that were larger than everybody else in our class, and they were also insecure. So there's something else that happens that either builds somebody's confidence or makes somebody more insecure. Um, I don't think confidence comes from what we do as much as from what we think. And it's been my experience that what I think is actually the thing that shapes what I do. I'm going to ask if you agree with this statement. Here's the statement. Do you agree with this? Ready? Confident people, and I don't, by confident, I don't mean arrogant. They're not cocky. They're not jerks. They're just confident. Confident people seem to live better, experience more, and go farther than insecure people. Would you agree with that? If that's true, I think it is. What would happen to your sense of confidence if I could convince you that you have a strategic advantage in life that you might not have thought of. And that's what I want to do today. In week one of this series, we said that Jesus gives us a mission, a purpose that's bigger than ourselves for which to leverage every area of our life in pursuit of. Last week in the teaching, we learned that God sent his spirit to help you and to guide you in that mission. And today, I want you to see where the original followers of Jesus got the confidence to obey God, no matter what, and then ultimately experience God on a more regular basis than what you and I get to experience Him in. If you've got your Bible, I want you to go to Acts chapter 4. I'm going to read verse 13, then I'll read verses 18 to 20, and then we're going to go back to chapter 3. Acts chapter 4, verse 13. The members of the council, this is the Jewish high council, were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures, and they also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. So what did they see in Peter and John that impressed them? Do you remember? What was it? They saw in Peter and John, and they were amazed when they saw their what? It was their boldness, their confidence. Like that's what stood out to them. When they saw Peter and John, they were above average in their confidence. Like they had a sense of purpose and direction that was uncommon. 
But you know what stands out to me about Peter and John? Is what the next statement said. That even though they saw that these guys had incredible boldness and that amazed them, they were, it was totally impressive. They also recognized that these guys had no special training and were just ordinary people. I think when we read the New Testament or even the Old Testament, when we read any part of the Bible and we find these people doing these amazing things and experiencing God in powerful ways in their lives, and they have a connection to the divine in a way that you or I might not at this moment have, we kind of project on them certain advantages that we would say are not available to us because we didn't live back then. That's what we think. And they were special people. They were saints. And I'm not a saint, no matter what my grandmother said about me, right? Like, I don't, I don't see myself that way. So I say that they were special people. But according to the scriptures, they actually weren't. Like the people that lived and talked and interacted with them would have recognized that they're just average people like you and me. So where does an average guy like you and me, or an average girl, where does an average person who has no special training in spiritual, like where do they get the kind of confidence to behave in a way that stands out and to live in a way that makes an outsized difference for the size of the life they had. I don't know if I said that right. I, probably like you, I, just, I want my life to count. I don't need to be famous, that's not what I'm saying. But I want to know that I didn't just take up space here. If there is a purpose for which I was created, and if there was an intention in God's choosing me to exist at this time, I don't want to live the one life I have and miss that purpose. Like I would, and I think there's some of this is going to happen to us. It, it, and I think there are some of us that are living far below our potential, even our capacity. Like there's some of us, if we're going to be completely honest, we might be guilty of wasting a little bit of our life right now. I, I've done the same thing. But there comes a point in your life where you catch yourself wasting your life. And I hope that that produces in you like some type of internal motivation to like get up off the couch. And I'm not saying you can't rest in Netflix. I'm just, or, you know, play video games or whatever. I, I do all of that. I'm just saying I, I don't want that to be the summation of my life, right? Like I, I don't want to miss anything that God intended for me. That's all I'm saying. And according to this passage of scripture, I don't need to be special. I don't need to be specially trained. I don't need to be above average. But there's something that they knew that I either forget or haven't learned that gave them the ability to behave in a way that amazed the people around them. That's all I'm saying. So when you skip down to verse 18, you see a little bit more of this. In verse 18, it says, so they called the apostles back into the room and they commanded them, never again teach in, this, in the name of Jesus. We don't want you guys, to, so they were in trouble. Never again do this. Never again teach in the name of Jesus. And here's how they responded to their authority figures. 
who, by the way, just a little while ago, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane with these same guys, and these same guys showed up to arrest Jesus, they were terrified of them. And they ran off into the night in fear. And now all of a sudden, they're in front of those exact same people they ran from before, and now they're being confronted like Jesus was confronted earlier. And they're told, we're going to let you go, but you'd better stop teaching in the name of Jesus. How are they going to respond? That's the next verse, verse 19. But Peter and John replied, do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? We cannot stop telling about everything that we have seen and heard. And they, that's, again, if they were amazed at Peter and John's boldness before, this probably just made some of them just go, right? Like drop their jaws and like, they didn't, they'd never had like an ordinary commoner, an average dude bow up on them like this before and they just didn't know what to do with it. And it's not hard for me to respect people who have strong convictions and are willing to stand by them. Like I don't have any respect for somebody who has strong convictions but then won't stand up for them whenever they're challenged. It's the combination of the two that I think is admirable. And I would imagine the same is probably true with you. So when I mention these two things, somebody who has strong convictions and somebody who also has the courage to stand up for them, who do you think of? Like I'll bet you know somebody in your life who is a person of conviction, who also has the courage to stand by their conviction even when it's unpopular. Maybe it's a political figure or of an athlete or, I don't know, an influencer or a mentor, school teacher. Maybe it was a classmate, a best friend or a brother or sister. I don't know who it is for you. But my question that we're going to answer with the rest of the teaching today is where did Peter and John get this kind of courage? And to answer that question, we're going to go back to the beginning of this story, which starts at the beginning of Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, verse 1. Peter and John went to the temple one afternoon to take part in the three o'clock prayer service. As they approached the temple, a man who was lame from birth was being carried into the temple. Each day he was put beside the temple gate, the one called the beautiful gate, so that he could beg from the people going into temple. Because where are you going to find the people who are thinking about being most charitable? It's the people who are on their way to worship God. They want brownie points with God, right? Like, that's when you want to ask them for financial assistance. <laughs> so somebody brings them to the temple gate, the beautiful gate, and uh, they lay him on the side, and he asks for alms. He begs for alms as people are walking into the temple. Verse 3, when he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for some money. Peter and John looked uh, at him intently, and Peter said, look at us. And the lame man looked at them, expecting that he was going to get money from them. Verse 5, uh, verse 6, but Peter said, I don't have any silver or gold for you, which probably was somewhat disappointing when he heard that come out of their mouth. But I'll give you what I do have. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, get up and walk. Then Peter took the lame man by the right hand, excuse me, by the right hand and helped him up. And as he did, the man's feet and ankles were instantly healed and strengthened. 
Verse 8, he jumped up, stood on his feet, and began to walk. Then walking, leaping, and praising God, he went into the temple with them. All the people saw him walking and heard him praising God on the inside of the temple. And when they realized that he was the same lame beggar that they had so often seen on the outside of the temple, they were absolutely astounded. The first answer to the question, where did Peter and John's confidence came from, is this. Peter's courage came from personal experience. That's where it came from. At the end of this story, because he's causing a scene, he's arrested and they're, they're put on this little mini, mini trial and they're warned. And, but Peter and John are being bold and, and they're, they're bold now. They have courage and confidence because they've already seen what God can do. So they're no longer afraid of what man can do. Like they, they know that there is a God who is right now presently at work in the world. And I'm on his side. It's not whether or not he's on my side, but whether or not I'm on his. And I obviously am. Like my experience demonstrates that to me. In Peter's first sermon, one chapter earlier in Acts chapter 2, in verse 22, actually, Peter starts off the sermon by saying, People of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. Why did Peter say that? Why did he talk about God endorsing Jesus by these powerful miracles, wonders, and signs, and then say, as you well know? because he wanted them to remember something that would produce confidence in their heart also. And that worked, because Peter appealed to their experience with God also and in the world. Then when he gets to the end of the sermon, they famously ask, I think it's in verse 37, brothers, then what should we do? And that's when Peter responds and he says, you need to repent of your sins and then be baptized in the name of, the, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And then they did. And it's not just that God did miracles to authenticate Jesus, the Old Testament prophets, or the New Testament apostles. It's the way that you and I have experienced God. It's the way that we've experienced grace from God rather than judgment. It's the way that we have, in some way in our life, experienced the presence of God, maybe through worship maybe through a time of prayer, or maybe in a moment in your life of desperation where you reached out to God and you, you somehow knew that you had God's attention. Like there's probably something in your life that you can look back on and go, yeah, but I can't explain that in any other way outside of God. It's your experience. It's the way that you felt your heart become lighter when you called on Jesus to forgive you and save you and you know that he did. It's the way that God continues to speak to you about things that never used to bother you before because as we talked about last week, God's Holy Spirit is now in you, transforming you from the inside out, right? It's, it's the way that you're motivated to confess to things that you've done wrong that you didn't even get in trouble for. It's a way that sometimes you're prompted in the middle of the night to pray for somebody that you haven't thought about in years. Maybe it's the way that you were talking about something and then you showed up in church and the preacher was 
preaching on the same thing that you were just talking about, and it confirmed what God had been speaking into your heart earlier. I, I, I can go on with other examples of how I've experienced God at work in my life to see which one of these you've experienced also, but I'm confident that you probably have some type of an experience that should give you confident that you're on God's radar. That's all I'm saying. That's where our confidence comes from. It's not, my confidence doesn't come from believing that I'm a better player than anybody else out there. My confidence comes from the fact that I have a better coach. There you go. That's it, right? Like I've got God at work right now in my life. And because I'm created in the image of God, I'm loved by God. And because I've repented of my sins and placed my faith in Jesus' death and resurrection to pay off my debt before God, because I've committed to following Jesus for the rest of my life, I've been adopted into the household of faith. I have become a son of God. Not the son, but a child of God. And his spirit, the Bible says, seals me until the day that I'm redeemed before God. And in the meantime, God's Holy Spirit is working in me to help me become more like the person God intended me to be. That's where my confidence comes from to keep playing even when I'm losing. That's where it comes from. Two, Peter's courage comes from the scripture. In Acts chapter 3, verse 12, the next part of the story, Peter saw his opportunity and addressed the crowd. People of Israel, he said. So this is a different group. But it's, and it's a different sermon, but he starts it the same way. People of Israel, he said, what is so surprising about this? And why stare at us as though we had made this man walk by our own power or godliness? Because remember, Peter knows that he's not a special man and that he has no special training. Peter knows this. I'm just a regular guy. For it is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our ancestors, who has brought glory to his servant Jesus by doing this. This is the same Jesus whom you handed over and rejected before Pilate, despite Pilate's decision to release him. You rejected this holy, righteous one and instead demanded the release of a murderer. You killed the author of... I'm not saying he's winning any points with the crowd or trying to make friends in this moment. <laughs> this dude is... Homeboy, homeboy is bringing the heat, man, right? He's bringing the heat. like He's got confidence. But get this. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. And we are witnesses of this fact. Though faith, through faith, in the name of Jesus, this man was healed, and you know how crippled he was before. Faith in Jesus' name was uh, has healed him before your very eyes. Friends, I realize that what you and your leaders did to Jesus was done in ignorance, but God was fulfilling what all of the prophets had foretold about the Messiah, that he must suffer these things. What Peter knew is what the scriptures had said about the Messiah. He knew about Isaiah chapter 53. He knew about Psalm 22. He knew about Psalm chapter 16, verse 10, that said the Holy One would not be dead long enough to decompose. Like he, he knew what Scripture said. And because he saw the way Scripture played out in real life, he had confidence. He had confidence that God's Word was true even when... Um, his feelings may have been saying something different. If I know what the Bible says, 
And then if I see that the evidence points to the truthfulness of the scriptures, then I can trust what it says, no matter how I feel also. Verse 22, he goes on. Moses said, now he's quoting scripture, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. Listen carefully to everything he tells you. Then Moses said, anyone who will not listen to that prophet will be completely cut off from God's people. Verse 24, starting with Samuel, every prophet spoke about what is happening today and you are the children of those prophets and you are included in the covenant that God promised to your ancestors. For God said to Abraham, through your descendants, all the families on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, Jesus, he sent him first to you people of Israel to bless you by turning each of you back from your sinful ways. Man, this kid knows his, he knows his scriptures. As most Jewish boys would have known having been raised in Hebrew school, but it was his confidence in the scriptures that gave him confidence in the way that he interacted with other people. And when he knew that what the scriptures said matched what he experienced, then he, it increased his confidence in God even more. And the truth is, the more time that you spend reading the Bible, the more you see it work at work in your life on a daily basis, the more confidence you'll also have in obeying God and following after him. Uh, there was a time in my life when I was reading the book of Romans uh, twice a week. I was doing this as a youth pastor because one of my teenagers and my youth group, I said, hey man, let's read the passage of scripture, but let's let really push ourselves. And he goes, how about if we read the book of Romans twice a week? And I was like, ugh. Right? Like, how, like what do you do when you, you're the mentor and you say, hey man, like, let's really push ourselves. And then they, they volunteer you to do more than what you intended to do. That was the situation I was in. So for about six weeks, I was reading the book of Romans twice a week. I was constantly reading the book of Romans. And what I noticed about halfway through that is that throughout the day, things that I was reading in the book of Romans was coming up because I was seeing it working in everything that was happening around me. It would, it would come up in a conversation. Somebody would say something and I would instantly think, oh my gosh, that's like Romans chapter eight. Right, like everything that I knew about scripture was actually consistent with everything that I was experiencing in the real world. And what that did was grow my confidence, not just in my relationship with God, but in, in the sovereignty, in the power, in the rightness of God, which then made it easier for me to trust him enough to obey him in every other area of my life. And when that happens in your life, it, it will help you gain confidence also. And the more confidence you have that what the scripture said is true, regardless of what you feel, the more you see it playing out in your regular everyday life through experience, the more likely you are to shoot your shot, spiritually speaking. I like what C.S. Lewis said. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. And that's exactly what starts to happen. What starts to happen through your experience and your regular engagement with the scriptures is you start to filter everything in life through what the Bible says, which then grows your faith. And you actually start to see God at work more often in your regular life. And the third thing 
uh, the third thing that built up Peter's confidence. Peter's confidence came from the presence of God's Spirit. We're going to go back to chapter uh, 4 now. Um, so Peter has uh, just gotten in, in trouble for this, but Acts chapter 4, verse 1, while Peter and John were speaking to the people, they were confronted by the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and some of the Sadducees. These leaders were very disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the people that through Jesus there is a resurrection of the dead. So they arrested them, and since it was already evening, they put them in jail until the morning. So things aren't really going right for them. That's that's what I'm talking about with like the... Um, like your feelings might not match what you know is true. So I'm doing the right thing, so why the heck am I in jail? They may have thought. I, I don't know what they were they were thinking. But there are times in our lives where our experiences don't match our feelings, I should say, don't match what we know. And it is our experience on how these things play out and looking back to see how God ended up using even the scary parts of our life that give me the confidence to keep doing the right thing, even if it doesn't feel good right now because I'm confident that this will also be used by God to do something good in my life. Also, not only because of what the Bible says, but because of how I've always experienced it in the past. They arrested them, and since it was already evening, put them in jail until morning. But many of the people who heard their message believed it, so the number of believers now totaled about 5,000 men, not counting women and children. So at the end of chapter 2, 3,000 people commit to faith in Jesus. We're at the beginning of chapter 4, and now there's 5,000 men plus women and children. The next day, the next morning, the council of all the rulers and elders and teachers of religious law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there along with Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other relatives of the high priest. They brought in two, the, the two disciples and demanded, by what power or in whose name have you done this, this miracle, this good deed? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of our people, are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Do you want to know how he was healed? These, <laughs> I'm, I, I'm reading it with like a little bit of sauce in it because that's actually how I picture it happening. Verse 10, let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, the man that you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. Drop the mic, peace, I'm out. Like they didn't know what to do with that, Right? But there's a statement in here that's a little bit confusing because we know from Acts chapter 1 and 2 that Jesus had said, and from our teaching last week, that Jesus said that when I leave, I'm going to send you the advocate, the Holy Spirit, who will not only be with you, but he will be permanently in you. And Jesus said, once he is in you, he'll never leave you. So if Peter, as evidenced by Acts chapter 2, is already filled with the Holy Spirit, then why does it go on to say in chapter 4, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said? I, I used to really struggle with that one. What, is, what does that mean? And I had somebody give me an illustration, and I forgot to bring it with me. I actually have it, though. Uh, is a, a yellow balloon. And so if I had this yellow balloon... The only thing that's in this yellow balloon is there's no water in it or anything like that. The only thing that would be in the yellow balloon is air. And it's the only thing in it. And the air is filling all of the empty spaces. But it's a balloon. So it's possible for me to blow into that balloon and increase its capacity to hold air. Now, it is always only filled with air. But there are times in which its capacity 
is expanded. Once you become a devoted follower of Jesus, God's Holy Spirit is, God's, God's presence is somehow, physically, permanently in you. But there are times in which your capacity to move in rhythm with what God is doing outside of you is turned up a little bit. I've experienced this in my life. Uh, there have been times, I, I mentioned the story a long time ago. Uh, and it's an easy one. I was in college and I was in a bad side of town and there was a guy that looked really sketchy. And um, on any other occasion, I would have turned around and walked away because if I walk over to that guy, I'm gonna die. That was, that was exactly the scenario. If I go, if I keep walking down this path, that guy's gonna jump me and he's gonna kill me. That is the scenario that I was in. But there was something on the inside of me like I, I didn't feel like I could turn around and walk away. I don't, I don't know how else to explain that. I didn't hear an audible voice of God, but I think it was one of those moments where then Sean, filled with the Holy Spirit, walked up to this scary man and had a conversation with him and found out that that man was about to commit suicide. And then we spent the next two hours together and uh, we went to a safe place and God changed his mind. There you go. That's all it was. There are times in our lives where you're in a situation where you feel compelled to do something you wouldn't normally do that is selfless. It's an act of sacrifice or an act of generosity or an act of boldness or courage that isn't a normal part of the way that you live your life. That's what I mean. And that's what I think it means when it says, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Then Peter did something that was outside of the normal Peter, and that was to stand up before all of them, not just the little council, but everybody. And as the minority in that group, speak truth to the antagonistic majority. Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. I've got a friend of mine uh, who was a stoner, uh, lived on the other side of the river, uh, other side of Hudson River from New York City. And he was in New York City with another friend of his, and they were both stoned off their butt. Uh, neither one of them had ever been to a church in their entire life. And a guy in a moped stopped, uh, left his moped running in the bike lane, walked over to my friend who was stoned off his butt, took off his helmet, and said, I know this is going to sound really weird, but I don't know why, I, but I feel like I need to tell you that God loves you. And the guy put on his helmet, got back on his moped, and rode away. My friend's friend smacked him and goes, bro, I bet that was an angel, right? Well, angel, or, then they had like a big, a long conversation whether or not it was an angel. But what it did in the heart of my friend was that it got my friend to actually go buy a Bible and he read through it three or four times until he figured out how to be saved from his sin all on his own without a preacher or a church or anything. All he had was God's word. All he had was God's word and a Christian who was filled with the Holy Spirit who did something outside of their normal routine. There you go. That's what that means. In my life, there are times when God's, God is pushing me towards some step of obedience, and there are other times when I'm not thinking about God at all, and what's the difference? Well, there are times when the Holy Spirit is expanding Sean's ability to participate in what God is already doing. 
I like the statement that was made by a famous pastor where he said that you've never looked into the eyes of someone that God does not love. And because of this, every single person you're going to see this week is either someone who has already been rescued from sin or they are someone that we've been sent to bring rescue to. Every single person is somebody who has already been rescued from sin by faith in Jesus or it is somebody that you and I have been sent to bring rescue to. And that's a little unnerving, which is the reason why I need confidence. Because there are times when I get the ball, when God's Holy Spirit puts the ball in my hand and I am in range, right? And I need the confidence to shoot. And I'm gonna get that confidence from three places. My experience and all the other ways that God has been at work in my life already, what the Bible has to say, and what the Spirit is compelling me and pushing me to do. If you are disconnected from God, you don't have to be any longer. Like Peter said, you need to repent of your sin and place your faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus for forgiveness and reconciliation with God. You need to do that. And you're gonna be spiritually lost until you finally humble yourself and admit that you're broken. And the most broken part of your life is not outside of you, it's on the inside of you. And only God can fix that. And God has already done everything necessary to make that happen. You just need to be willing to let go of your selfishness and sin, just like the rest of us. Everybody has to do this. And accept that only Jesus' death and resurrection pays off your debt before God and gives you a shot at a new form of life, following Jesus. Tell him that. If you're already a Christian, I think you need to chase your potential as a child of God for the kingdom of God. On Judgment Day, you're not going to care how much money you had when you retired, but you will care how many of your friends are going to spend eternity with God and with you. God has given you a purpose, which is to help your friends know and follow Jesus. God has and will guide you through his presence, through the Holy Spirit, to do what he wants you to do on a daily basis. And God will give you confidence as you obey, memorize scripture, and follow the prompting of his Holy Spirit. So I'm gonna end with three questions. One is this, do you spend any time reading God's word regularly? That's going to affect your ability to one, obey, and two, to trust, and three, to be involved with what God's wanting to do in the world through you. Peter, his confidence came from what he knew that the scriptures said. And the same thing is true for you. It's what happened when I read the book of Romans. It's what happened when my friend started reading the Bible, on his own even. You need to spend time with God regularly reading scripture. Number two, is there any area of your life where you are disobedient to something that you know God is asking you to do or to stop doing? I can't answer that question for you. But you're gonna stay stuck spiritually if you are unwilling to obey something that God's already told you to do. Some of you guys might even be asking God, God, give me direction on this other thing. He's like, I'm not gonna give you direction on step two and three because you won't obey me on the direction I gave you for step one. Like, why would God give you more instructions to disobey? If there is something that you know for a fact you need to stop doing, then dang it, stop. If there's something that he's asked you to do, then for the love of God, do that. Take your next step of obedience, whatever that is. And last, who is God prompting you to pray for, to spend time with, to meet the needs of, 
to forgive or just talk to this week. Be open to the idea that the Holy Spirit is going to prompt you to do something that you normally wouldn't do. And then we'll see if you have enough confidence to actually do what he says to do. <laughs> That's going to be awesome. Um, and I'd love for you to share the story of what happens. Uh, send an email to info at thatsgrace.org and let us know. I, I can't wait. Let's pray. God, I love you with all of my heart. And I'm thankful that our lives matter and that you want to do things in the world with us. You could do them without us, but it brings you happiness to use us. God, for those who are spiritually disconnected from you, I pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to soften their heart and draw them towards faith in you. We learned last week that that's one of the Holy Spirit's jobs. So I'm asking you to send your Holy Spirit into the heart to convict them of sin, their disobedience towards you, our selfishness towards others, and convince them of the worthiness of Jesus in his life, his death, his burial, and resurrection. God, help them to commit to following you with the rest of their life and place your Holy Spirit in them. God, for those of us who have your Holy Spirit, Forgive us for all of the ways in which we say no to the things he says yes to. The things that we say yes to, the things that he's told us to say, to say no to. God, give us a greater desire to know the scriptures, to read them on a regular basis. Help us to be quick to confess our sin and quick to obey and trust you with huge, awesome steps of bold faith so that we can experience every amazing thing you have planned for our lives. This is what we pray. We ask this in the name of Jesus, and we all say it together, amen.